This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I hope you're having a terrific day. I appreciate you joining us for Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. American Independence Day is just a month away. July 4th, 1776, our founders declared America's independent sovereignty from England. Well, there's a group of leaders that want to surrender major portions of that sovereignty. The Joe Biden administration is considering a treaty that will turn significant American sovereignty over to the World Health Organization, an international organization dominated by China. We'll hear a report about this from Trumpet staff writer Andrew Miller. Then, how life is changing under the rule of lawyers. Law should be a blessing, holding society on the rails and protecting citizens. Increasingly today, it's being used as a weapon to hurt people and to protect evil. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau about the history of how we got here and some concerning effects of this trend in law. Then we'll talk about the CPEC conference that took place last month in Budapest, Hungary, the Conservative Political Action Conference. This has been befriending Viktor Orban and other European leaders who are fighting radical socialist leftist trends over there. And on one hand, you can understand why these truly are some evil trends they're resisting. And there are parallels with what's happening in America. But as we'll hear in a report from trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic, there's another side of this that is concerning. And it calls to mind some troubling World War II era history. At the end of the show, I'll say a few words about why it's important that you prove your beliefs in God and prove whether or not the Bible is the inspired word of God. Let's start now by learning about this move to yield American sovereignty and independence in this report from Andrew Miller. Last week, delegates from 194 countries gathered in Geneva, Switzerland to attend the 75th World Health Assembly. Now, these meetings are generally dry, technocratic events. But this year, delegates had something significant to discuss. An international pandemic treaty tied to a digital passport system. Now, it'll be another two years before the terms of this treaty are finalized. But the idea is to shift governing authority now reserved for sovereign states over to the World Health Organization during future disease epidemics. The first draft of this proposed pandemic treaty is supposed to be finished by August. But the United States has already recommended amending existing international health regulations to enhance data sharing between member states in the World Health Organization. Such data sharing is a necessary step on the path to create a digital vaccine passport system operable in all 194 countries in the World Health Organization. Now, amendments to the U.S. Constitution must be approved by a two-thirds majority vote in the Senate and then ratified by three-quarters of the states. Yet amendments to World Health Organization treaties do not need to be approved by anyone except the President of the United States. These types of treaties steal sovereignty from the American people and bestow it instead upon a cabal of United Nations technocrats. 
That's why American politician Michelle Bachman told Steve Bannon in his wardroom broadcast that the Biden administration is bringing amendments that were proposed to all nations of the earth cede their sovereignty over to the national health care decisions of the World Health Organization. This means that the World Health Organization will have decision-making authority to intervene in the United States government policy and any nation of the world without their permission. Now, at this point, there's no binding obligations on the table. The World Health Organization would have the power to declare a public health emergency of international concern without the consent of the governments concerned, but would not gain the power to enforce any of these recommendations. But United Nations technocrats still feel confident that some of the more concerning changes will move forward. They have already selected T-Systems International, a subsidiary of Deutsche Telekom, to develop validation services that confirm the authenticity of digital COVID certificates. So the United Nations wants Germany to run a digital passport system with the capacity to keep track of people's vaccination status. And the Biden administration wants Americans to be one of these nations. This is a potential nightmare for civil liberties. According to Garrett Meh, head of the World Health Organization's Department of Digital Health and Innovation, vaccine certificates are a tamper-proof and digitally verifiable built trust. The World Health Organization is therefore able to support member states in building national and regional trust networks and verification technology. Now, that's, a, that's quite the mouthful, but many analysts have pointed out to the fact that he's basically calling for a universal, mandatory, transnational system operated by unelected bureaucrats that has the potential to develop into something very like a Chinese-style social credit system. In communist China, the government assigns citizens a trustworthiness score based on data gathered by mass surveillance. So suppose a Chinese citizen makes a political comment without a permit, questions a government decision, or refuses a state-mandated vaccine. Their trustworthiness score goes down, and the police might show up at their door. A passport system like the one T-Systems is developing for the United Nations would have a similar capacity to track individual behavior and then report it to their respective governments. This might sound like a worst-case scenario, but newly released documents obtained by Motherboard shows that the United States Center for Disease Control did use location data from tens of millions of American phones to track compliance with COVID-19 lockdown orders. And Obama administration officials have long advocated surrendering American sovereignty to the United Nations. In fact, in his last address before the United Nations, Barack Obama said, I believe that at this moment we all face a choice. We can choose to press forward with a better model of cooperation and integration, or we can retreat back into a world sharply divided and ultimately in conflict along age-old lines of nation, tribe, race, and religion. So in short, Obama is calling for an end to national sovereignty, and the United States responded to his call four years later by locking down their economy after the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Now, President Donald Trump suspended America's payments to the World Health Organization after it became public knowledge that it helped China cover up the fact that coronavirus originated in a Wuhan lab. 
But Joe Biden has reestablished America's relationship with this corrupt institution and is now trying to amend existing international health regulations to allow for more data sharing with the United Nations. Representative Chris Smith, the ranking member of the House Global Health Committee, explained why this is a bad idea. On May 18th, he said, on the outset of the COVID pandemic, the World Health Organization caved to pressure from the Chinese Communist Party and enabled China to hoodwink the world by providing tremendous cover to the Chinese Communist Party, deadly lie that coronavirus was not transmissible from person to person, even after being informed the truth by Taiwan. Instead of demanding accountability from the World Health Organization and its director for their complicity in the spread of COVID, as I argued two years ago, the Biden administration seeks to turn over American sovereignty and decision-making, potentially subjecting us to the Chinese Communist Party's ongoing malign influence. Now, that's all concerning, and a future Republican president may try and pull America out of the World Health Organization once again. But the Obama-Biden push to shift power from national to globalist policies will continue. The rise of these symptoms and ideas is important to watch in light of Bible prophecy about an end-time tyrannical government that prohibits people from buying or selling unless they receive something called the mark of the beast. Uh, this prophecy is contained in Revelation 13, verses 16 through 17. And while vaccine passports are not this mark of the beast, uh, which has existed since ancient times, vaccine passports are a technological tool the authoritarian governments can use to punish those who refuse this mark. Many conservatives are focusing on the World Health Organization's ties to China and ignoring the fact that the World Health Organization has actually asked Germany to develop its validation services. So time may yet prove the World Health Organization's German connection to be far more significant than its Chinese connection. The late Herbert W. Armstrong explained in his booklet, Who or What is the Prophetic Beast, that the mark of the beast is associated with the religion of the Roman Empire and is namely Sunday worship. He wrote that the Roman church caused people to receive the pagan mark of Rome, the Sunday observed by the pagan Roman Empire, and the penalty for disobedience was death. 50 million or more people were put to death, so says history. Now, other scriptures show that there will be a 10-nation revival of the Roman Empire in Europe. So it's significant that Germany and the European Union are spearheading the United Nations drive for digital passports. Currently, no one is talking about digital validation services to track whether someone goes to church, but the same technology used to determine whether or not you have been vaccinated could easily be altered to track Sunday church attendance as part of a person's social credit score. This means that a modern Holy Roman Empire will have a technological capacity for tyranny the old Roman emperors could only dream about. President Donald Trump formally withdrew the United States from the World Health Organization for an important reason. So the fact that Biden wants to start surrendering U.S. sovereignty to this entity once again should be concerning. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine.
You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Lawyers in America are meant to defend the Constitution, but more and more of them actually view that document as a hindrance and do all they can to work around it, as we will now hear in this report from Abraham Blondo. All lawyers who join the bar must pledge to support the Constitution of the United States. Perhaps no lawyer epitomized this solemn pledge in its entirety more than Abraham Lincoln. As a lawyer for over 20 years and then as president, Lincoln preserved the principles in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Even during the darkest days of the Civil War, Lincoln never abandoned being a guardian of the Republic. He was America's greatest president and its greatest lawyer. The Founding Fathers intended for lawyers to play a pivotal role in the survival of the United States. Quote, in the Republic's early days, lawyers provided ballast for stability, wrote John McGinnis for City Journal. The judiciary's sober attachment to formal order was a primary reason for giving it the power to review the constitutionality of legislation. Law was a profession most likely to preserve the enduring framework of Republican government against the mutable passions of the hour, end quote. Yet even in his day, Lincoln noticed a trend of lawlessness in America that was pushing the nation into a bitter crisis. In a speech to Young Man's Lyceum in 1838, Lincoln said, I hope I am not overweary, but if I am not, there is even now something of ill omen amongst us. I mean the increasing disregard for law which pervades the country. End quote. Nineteen years later, the Supreme Court handed down its judgment on the Dred Scott case, enshrining slavery into the Constitution and violating every principle America was founded upon. This lawlessness and disregard for the supreme law of the land led to a devastating civil war. Yet the lawlessness of today's lawyers is on a far more radical scale. McGinnis continues, Today's bar looks nothing like that of the early republic. Far from being a conservative influence, lawyers are more liberal than the median voter. And those who train the next generation of lawyers, the law professors, are overwhelmingly left-wing, favoring all sorts of foolish innovations, from abolition of prisons to putting the Federal Reserve in charge of setting prices for core goods." End quote. A great change has taken place in America that has transformed lawyers from guardians of the republic to waging lawfare against the republic. Instead of seeing the Constitution as the guiding document, it is seen as the enemy. Now a majority of lawyers have become agents of the radical left deep state, implementing an agenda to fundamentally transform America. How did this radical transformation take place? The story unveils the direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy and helps explain the dangerous attacks taking place inside America today. One of the most consequential effects of the Great Depression was the creation of the managerial state. President Franklin Roosevelt's massive expansion of government and regulation changed America forever. Government bureaucracy now had a role in every part of everyday life, and all those government agencies interacted with public via lawyers. McGinnis wrote, At the time of the Constitution, lawyers obtained their fees largely from private transactions. They negotiated and litigated contracts, conveyed property, and drew up trusts. 
But since the New Deal, much of law has become administrative law. Because the modern state is the administrative state, government's lawyers' practice consists in finding new ways to regulate. For private lawyers, it consists in finding new ways of complying with or avoiding regulation. Lawyers thus gain with an increase in any scope of government agencies and complexity of the related procedures. End quote. Forbes investigated how many federal government agencies exist, but even the source book of United States executive agencies acknowledges that, quote, there is no authoritative list of government agencies, end quote. However, other sources list around the 220 executive departments with a total of 440 government agencies that, as of December 2016, the U.S. government is the largest employer of lawyers, with 25060 on the payroll, costing an average of $3.3 billion per year. The government employs more lawyers than the top seven private law firms combined. More than half of those lawyers are in the Washington, D.C. Beltway. Government bureaucracies have created a labyrinth of regulations that often require lawyers to navigate. Instead of helping people be successful with their own private ventures, lawyers interpret what the managerial state tells people they can and cannot do. Lawyers are a layer between the bloated administrative state and the citizenry, not a defender of private interests. There are many lawyers who do help people and believe in the principles of the Constitution, but too often that is not the case. Big government has been very profitable for the lawyer class. Yet the main driver of this radical change in the lawyers was a radical change in the law schools. McGinnis wrote, quote, The other primary factor behind the bar's transformation has been the rise of living constitutionalism and rights expansion, beginning in the 1960s. Under living constitutionalism, lawyers and judges are not simply servants of the law, but potentially tribunes of the people, because they can choose to create new rights and discard others. In a legal world without the formal anchoring in texts and precedents that characterized the lawyer's craft of the past, innovation and indeed radicalism are prized as sources of power. Lawyers become no longer the rampart of the republic, but the disruptor of its order. End quote. It is a matter of record that in the 1960s, an ideological change swept through law schools in America. But what caused this change? The late Herbert W. Armstrong pinpointed the cause of this radicalism as a communist infiltration of America. Mr. Armstrong wrote in 1956, quote, It's a kind of warfare we don't understand or know how to cope with. It uses every diabolical means to weaken us from within, sapping our strength, perverting our morals, sabotaging our educational system, wrecking our social structures, destroying our spiritual and religious life, weakening our industrial and economic power, demoralizing our armed forces, and finally, after such infiltration, overthrowing our government by force and violence. End quote. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry explains in the booklet Great Again that the communists specifically targeted educational institutions. Quote, In the 1960s and 70s, America had many problems with rioting and violence on college campuses, Mr. Flurry wrote. Soon the new left began to infiltrate these institutions and gain control. It was in the educational system that the left got its foothold into the nation. 
first in colleges, then high schools, and even elementary schools. It is from the educational system that a nation gets its leadership. Where did the ideas of America's leaders today come from? From our educational institutions, end quote. In law schools, communist educators who hate the Constitution and the principles of the law gained control and taught lawyers to hate the supreme law of the land. These radical left lawyers are now amongst the 2060 employed by the federal government, occupying the seats of judges all the way up to the Supreme Court. They conspired to subvert, disrupt, and undermine the Constitution of the United States and advance the agenda of the administrative deep state. Mr. Fleury has exposed a number of shocking scandals committed by the radical left to fundamentally transform America and undermine leaders who fight back against that agenda. And in each case, lawyers are at the very heart and core of this lawfare to overthrow the Constitution. The first major scandal was Watergate. Mr. Flory wrote, Many Americans these days know little about what happened at Watergate. To them, it is a scandal that brought down a corrupt president. But there is much more to the story. End quote. The real story was the radical left taking down a president who was exposing the infiltration. Jeff Shepard was a deputy defense counsel for Richard Nixon and exposes the real story in his book called The Real Watergate Scandal. Nixon had brought down the famous Soviet spy Alger Hiss. That made him a target by the radical left lawyers. Shepard outlines how Judge John Serica had secret backroom meetings with the prosecutors, going over secret government documents, in order to conspire during the trial to bring Nixon down. Shepard wrote, Nixon was done in by officers of the court, the very people sworn to uphold the law and the Constitution, federal judges and federal prosecutors who met in secret and reached backroom deals and how to best take him down and secure the conviction of his senior aides. That is the real Watergate scandal, end quote. Mr. Fleury commented on that and wrote, The law-breaking in the Watergate scandal was nothing compared to the law-breaking these people did behind the scenes. They violated the Constitution time after time because they have no respect for it. They have such towering respect for their own intellect that they think they know more than the Founding Fathers. End quote. Lawyers and judges removed a duly elected president from office. In 1987, the radical left conspired to stop Robert Bork, an originalist, from being confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. Bork had been Nixon's acting attorney general, who had fired the special prosecutor during Watergate. The Democrat senators launched a personality assassination on Bork that was so vile and extreme, the media acknowledged it was a lynching. But all the lies worked, and Bork was not confirmed. Mr. Flory wrote in America Under Attack, Why was Robert Bork so demonized? Why was his nomination to the Supreme Court turned into a witch hunt, when it was obvious he was more than qualified? The reason was, the radical left feared him. And for what reason? Judge Bork was known for one thing more than anything else, believing in the Constitution. End quote. However, it was not just the Democrats who attacked Bork. McGinnis explained in City Journal how the American Bar Association attacked Bork and publicly sided with the radical left. The Bar Association 
is the organization that gives lawyers their licenses. McGinnis wrote, The watershed public moment marking this shift was the decision in 1987 by four members of its standing committee on the federal judiciary to rate Robert Bork as not qualified for the Supreme Court. The judgment of the committee members represented an ideological assassination under the veil of professional assessment, and it may have proved decisive because Bork's opponents trumpeted it as a politically neutral reason to oppose his nomination, end quote. There was a grand conspiracy by the lawyers, legal organizations, and the Democratic Party to stop Bork. Mr. Fleury continued, Many people at that time recognized that this was a watershed event in American politics. The tide turned in a big way in 1987. Law started to get a lot weaker. And lawlessness started to get much, much stronger. End quote. This event coincided with a spiritual turning point that happened on January 16, 1986. And to find out more about that spiritual turning point, please read our book, America Under Attack. The treasonous lawlessness increased with the Russia collusion hoax surrounding Donald Trump's presidential election and term in office. Some of the same actors from Watergate appeared again in this scandal, including Hillary Clinton and Bill Barr. The trumpet has exposed in detail the different elements of the plot to sabotage Donald Trump and overturn the 2016 election. From Hillary Clinton paying for the fake Steele dossier, to the FBI illegally getting the FISA warrants, to the Clinton campaign spying on Trump, and the Mueller investigation. Mr. Floyd wrote in the Trumpet article, Barack Obama exposed, quote, In the fall of 2020, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe declassified critical documents exposing the fact that the Steele dossier and the plot against Donald Trump trace all the way up to top officials in the Obama administration, including President Obama himself. This is blatant criminal activity at the highest levels of government. End quote. Each stage of this conspiracy, orchestrated by Barack Obama, was enabled by radical left lawyers working as intermediaries between the different agencies, working the course to justify illegal activities, or radical judges violating the Constitution. The communist infiltration has been shockingly successful. The fulfillment of Bible prophecy has been stunningly accurate. The deep state lawfare that started with Watergate has culminated into Obama and the radical left stealing the 2020 election. Lawyers and judges who have taken a solemn pledge to protect the Constitution are now the chief enablers of its destruction. Mr. Flory writes in Great Again, Communists first corrupt, pollute, and agitate from within, but their final phase is a violent overthrow of the government. They aim to destroy the system because they can't build another one until that happens. The communist attack from within America is far more significant than you may realize. We are staring it in the face today. End quote. The corruption of Barack Obama and the radical left is staring you in the face right now. The complete train wreck of the fake presidency are the bitter fruits of this communist infiltration. What you are witnessing is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. There are no lawyers like Abraham Lincoln who dedicated his life, even sacrificed his life, to uphold the Constitution and to preserve the Union. Right now, the Republic is under attack, and only Bible prophecy can show you why and how it is happening. To learn more about the spiritual dimension behind this lawfare, 
please read America Under Attack. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. American conservatives are cozying up to some of the more radical right figures in European politics, sharing common cause in the battle against radical leftist thinking. There is some cause for concern here, as we will now learn in this report from Mihailo Zekic. I'd like to give a very special thank you to the Center for Fundamental Rights and the American Conservative Union. It's really been uh, a fight, and you had a fight, and you're doing fantastically well, and everybody appreciates it. Also, CPAC Hungary, uh, we are very close, as you know, all of us, to Viktor Orban. He's a great leader, a great gentleman, and he just had a very big election result. I was very honored to have endorsed him. A little unusual endorsement. Usually I'm looking at the 50 states, but here we uh, went a little bit astray. And I did that only because he really is a good man and he's done a fantastic job for his country. And we're looking to stop a lot of the problems that are going on in the world, including in the United States, socialism and even communism, if you look at it really deeply. But it's just an honor to be with you, even if it's only briefly, even if it's just doing it the way we're doing it right now. And one of these days soon, we'll all be together. Just keep up the good work, keep up the fight, and I'll see you soon. That was a video message from United States President Donald Trump played at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, convention held on May 19th and 20th. The conference was held in Hungary's capital Budapest, with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban as the host and keynote speaker. CPAC was founded by the American Conservative Union in 1974 and calls itself the largest and most influential gathering of conservatives in the world. It normally holds conventions within the United States. It has hosted conferences abroad before, in Australia, Brazil, Japan, and South Korea. But the Budapest Conference was the first time CPAC was hosted in Europe. Aside from Trump, other prominent participants included Fox News anchor Tucker Carlson, Trump's former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former Republican Senator from Pennsylvania Rick Santorum, British politician Nigel Farage, American commentators Dennis Prager and Candace Owens, several current U.S. congressional representatives, and others. Why was Hungary chosen for CPAC's first European conference? Viktor Orban leads the right-wing Fidesz party. He has ruled Hungary since 2010, along with a brief stint from 1998 to 2002. A staunch conservative, Orban supports policies anathema to Europe's mainstream politicians. He is against accepting Muslim refugees and indoctrination of homosexual ideology. He wants Hungary's churches to have a greater say in public policy. And he hasn't been afraid to stand up for his policies in Brussels against Europe's liberal elite. Here is a quote from Orban's keynote speech. Let us start by saying that you politicians who love your country face a problem that we Hungarians have already tackled successfully. The problem, if I am not mistaken, both in America and Western Europe, 
is the domination of public life by progressive liberals. The problem is the fact that they hold the most important positions in the most important institutions, that they occupy the dominant positions in the media, and that they produce all the politically indoctrinating works of high and mass culture. They, the progressive left, tell us what is the truth and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. This kind of rhetoric really resonates with the American right, and to many Americans, Viktor Orban seems like a natural ally. It wasn't only American conservatives and Hungarian politicians at the convention. Many important political figures from across Europe were either attending or invited, and many of them have interesting backgrounds. One of the speakers was Jordan Bardella. Bardella is the acting president of the National Rally, France's main far-right party. The National Rally's founder, Jean-Marie Le Pen, has been convicted of Holocaust denial. He once called the Nazi gas chambers a minor detail in the history of World War II. The party's candidate in France's presidential election from earlier this year, Marine Le Pen, Jean-Marie's daughter, is a supporter of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Marine Le Pen was originally scheduled as a speaker at CPAC, but was later dropped. Also present was Italian member of the European Parliament Vincenzo Sofo. Sofo belongs to Brothers of Italy, a far-right, post-fascist party descending from a movement formed in 1946 by Benito Mussolini supporters. And there is still plenty of love for Mussolini and the party today. In 2019, several mayors in Brothers of Italy held a commemorative dinner for the anniversary of the March on Rome, Mussolini's famous seizure of power in 1922. Santiago Abascal, meanwhile, gave a video message. He's the president of Spain's Vox Party, also far-right. Abascal once said that life in Spain was better under Francisco Franco, the fascist dictator who governed Spain from 1939 to 1975, than it was in modern times. Then there was the invitation of Herbert Kickel. Kickel is the leader of Austria's Freedom Party and former Minister of the Interior. The Freedom Party was founded by a former SS officer. A previous leader once called to repeal Austria's ban of the swastika. The Freedom Party even sent so-called election observers to the Russia-orchestrated referendum in Crimea in 2014, which led to Russia annexing the region from Ukraine. Many of these parties and their politicians are popular because they attack legitimate problems that mainstream parties in their countries struggle to address. Many have participated in government without introducing concentration camps and book burnings. But there's no denying that many of their followers have a nostalgia for Europe's fascist past. And if some of these figures were given absolute power in their countries, who knows what direction they would take their countries down. Also invited to CPAC was Jolt Bayer, a far-right Hungarian talk show host, He once called Jews stinking excrement and claimed that 
a significant part of the Roma, or gypsies, are unfit for coexistence. Orban gave Bayer the Hungarian Order of Merit in 2016. These are the kinds of people Viktor Orban associates with. And Orban himself is no committed Democrat. He won his fourth consecutive election on April 3rd of this year. There are widespread allegations of electoral fraud and manipulation of the vote, with evidence. Furthermore, an estimated 80 to 95 percent of Hungarian media is controlled either by Orban's government or his oligarch cronies. And Orban himself bragged about his control over the media at CPAC. Orban is also considered one of Vladimir Putin's best friends in the European Union. In 2014, Orban summed up his vision for Hungary in a speech. He bragged about turning Hungary into what he called an illiberal state, where fundamental values like freedom are not, according to Orban, a central element of state organization. Is this really the kind of company American conservatives want to keep? Orban's iron-fisted grip on the media was noticed during the event. CPAC Hungary had a noticeable lack of media coverage. Journalists from mainstream sources like Vice, Rolling Stone, the Associated Press, Vox, no relation to the party, and the New Yorker were denied entry. Some of these news mediums are left-leaning publications that may not get along well with American or European conservatives. But even the Joe Biden White House, which routinely disparages right-wing news sources like Fox News, at least allows their reporters to come to press conferences. Muzzling the press is something more in common to third-world dictatorships. That's not to say, though, that the Republican Party is becoming neo-fascist. Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson are not closet neo-Nazis. But in their efforts to combat the radical left... American conservatives are making allies of some dangerous people. The radical left takeover in America is a genuine threat, but the history of the 20th century shows that fascism can be just as brutal as communism. In fighting one evil, many in America are making friends with another. There is a spiritual dimension to this. The radical left in America is a dangerous foe. They have all but destroyed America's democratic political system. They are trying to set themselves up to govern for life. They are hunting down political opponents. It's clear to many in America that there is something ominous going on in Washington. The prophet Daniel wrote about these conditions plaguing modern America. He prophesied of a little horn. That's in Daniel chapter 8 verse 9 a biblical symbol for a government. Verse 12 shows that this government cast down the truth to the ground and prospered in doing so. Verse 13 in the Revised Standard Version shows this government's enemies were trampled underfoot. This prophecy was fulfilled in part by Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king who ruled over the Holy Land and tyrannized the ancient Jews. His rule culminated in what Daniel 11 calls the abomination that makes desolate, a pagan statue placed in the Holy of Holies in God's temple. This, however, was only a prophetic type 
of what is happening in America today. Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry wrote in his free booklet, America Under Attack, quote, virtually all commentaries agree that the little horn refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, a dictator who obtained rule in Palestine in 176 BC through deceit and flattery. What they overlook, though, is that this also has an end-time fulfillment. Mr. Fleury writes later on that there is another Antiochus type who undermines the nations of Israel, including America, and prepares them for their destruction. Many can see something dangerous happening with the radical left in America. But what many do not realize is that the same Antiochus spirit behind the radical left is also at work in Europe. In Europe's case, it is working through the radical right. The Daniel A prophecy was fulfilled one other time in ancient history. This is when the Roman army besieged Jerusalem in AD 70 and completely destroyed the city. In Revelation chapter 13, Rome is described prophetically as a beast, a vicious warrior empire led by Satan. Rome fell centuries ago. But Revelation 17, another prophecy about the beast, shows that the empire would be resurrected. Verse 10 shows there would be seven consecutive resurrections of the Roman Empire. Six of these have come and gone, leaving one more. Verses 12 and 13 show that this last resurrection will be composed of ten European strongmen pooling their resources in one great superstate. Bible prophecy records that this resurrected Roman Empire will revive religion and its place in society. It will persecute outsiders. It will help bring in an economic revolution. It will bring new life to the military. And it will come in the spirit of Antiochus. Mr. Fleury writes in America Under Attack, quote, beginning in Daniel 8 verse 23, is a prophecy of a king of fierce countenance rising up in the latter time. This aligns with several other prophecies that refer to a mighty political leader who is about to emerge to lead the final resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire in Europe. He is also a type of Antiochus. He'll be somewhat in the mold of Adolf Hitler, yet with far more subtlety and smoothness. But he is going to lead that European power in destroying America, Britain, and the Jewish nation called Israel. This terrifying event is prophesied in dozens of scriptures. End quote. The trumpet expects men like Victor Orban to be the kings of Revelation 17.12. Men like Donald Trump may be fighting against the spirit of Antiochus in America, but in doing so, they are actively supporting that same spirit of Antiochus in Europe. In trying to save America, they are empowering the force that will end up destroying America. And once it's fully manifested, it won't take long for the spirit of Antiochus to do its dirty work. To learn more, please request free copies of America Under Attack and the Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy. You can find both at thetrumpet.com. 
It's time for today's Last Word. It is the most essential question in your life. Does God exist? Or is God a myth? Many people think of God as a superstition or a human invention. In a lot of ways, modern society is built on that assumption. Millions of people believe what they believe because they carelessly take it for granted. And meanwhile, millions of others take it for granted that God does exist. Why is that? Because they were taught it from childhood or because the people around them generally believe it. But few of them have proved it. The answer to this essential question isn't something to take for granted. Wrong assumptions lead to dangerous error for individuals and for entire societies. Many societies have invented gods from their own imaginations. Many have worshipped them using idols of wood or stone or metal. Many have idolized the sun or other inanimate objects of nature. These gods have proven false. Some societies have used belief in their gods to justify terrible abuse of fellow human beings, including religious crusades and mass murder. At the same time, societies that have rejected God's existence have perpetrated some of the worst mass killings in human history. Throughout human history, wrong answers to this essential question have caused mountains of tragic human suffering. If God does exist, who or what is God? The answer is crucial to your understanding of your own purpose for existence and of how you must live your life. To begin proving the answer, I want to encourage you to read Does God Exist? by Herbert W. Armstrong. You can find it online at thetrumpet.com in our literature library. You can even request a free copy. We'd be happy to send you one. The question of God's existence leads to many other vital questions. What is God's nature and character? Did God create the material world? And if he did, why? What is God's purpose? All of these questions and many more are answered in the first chapter of Mr. Armstrong's most important book, Mystery of the Ages. The title of that chapter is Who and What is God? It's an excellent resource for further study on this subject. The second essential question you have to answer is, is the Bible true? It's by far the most popular and influential book in human history, but is it actually what it claims to be, the authoritative word of the Creator God? Or is it just the religious writings of a small ancient race, groping in the darkness of human ignorance and of superstition, trying to develop a concept of God? Again, we have to acknowledge that most people operate according to their own assumptions or received understanding rather than having proved the answer. Modern education instills within students a hostility toward the Bible. And most students accept those ideas and attitudes. They suppose them to be rational and irrefutable without examining evidence to the contrary. And those students have gone on to shape the society and the world in which we live. At the same time, most people who accept the idea that the Bible is inspired by God don't study it, or they don't believe it and live by it. 
The Bible makes this extraordinary claim in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's quite a claim. But the Bible can be hard to understand. Many people pick and choose the portions that they find inspirational and ignore the rest. Many twist the meaning of certain scriptures and dismiss anything they disagree with. You don't need to wonder about this crucial subject. You can prove whether the Bible is, in fact, the inspired, authoritative Word of God. Believe it or not, the Bible itself offers several tests of its own authority. It makes claims that can be shown absolutely to be true or false. You can study these yourself by reading Mr. Armstrong's booklet, The Proof of the Bible. You can read it online or ask us for a copy. We'll send you one. Proving the Bible is a life-changing study. You will see definitively that God does exist, that he's provided detailed revelation regarding who he is, what his plan and purpose are, why he created mankind, and how to live in a way that leads to fulfillment, satisfaction, peace, prosperity, and happiness. Now is the time to begin your study of this life-changing question. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Andrew Miller, Abraham Blondo, and Mihailo Zekic. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Bernard Berenson. I wish I could stand on a busy corner, hat in hand, and beg people to throw me all their wasted hours. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.